When caring for a seriously ill loved one, the journey shouldn't be taken alone. Circle of Life Hospice can help. Services are covered by Medicare, Medicaid, and private insurance. No one is turned away based on an inability to pay. 750-6632 or nwacircleoflife.com for more. Arkansas PBS is premiering a new kids series, Mystery League, with new episodes airing every Sunday. The 20-episode live-action series follows three fifth-grade detectives as they solve the never-ending mysteries of the fictional small Arkansas town of Mulberry Springs. More at myarpbs.org slash mysteryleague. This is Ozarks at Large for Friday, November 24th, 2023. I'm Kyle Kellams. Ahead this hour... Illinois-based singer-songwriter Dan McGuire stopped by the Furman Garner Performance Studio this fall during a tour that took him through northwest Arkansas. When he was here, he played a couple of songs for us, and he talked about how he fell in love with music when he was growing up in Tulsa. That's in our second half hour. First this Friday, how Italian and American politicians and an Arkansas plantation helped influence U.S. immigration policy. Lauren braun Strumfels writes about the Sunnyside Plantation in southern Arkansas in her book, Partners in Gatekeeping, How Italy Shaped U.S. Policy Over Ten Pivotal Years, 1891-1901. to Owners of the plantation promised the American dream to Italian immigrants. The promises didn't materialize, and some of the newcomers left for northwest Arkansas and established Tawnytown, a community that still embraces its Italian heritage. Braun Strumfels was on the University of Arkansas campus this fall, and while here, came by the Carver Center for Public Radio. She says Sunnyside was initially developed as a cotton plantation in the first half of the 19th century. By the 1890s, the plantation had changed hands in an unusual way to a degree, um, which is that a New York-based banking house, the Austin Corbin Banking Company, had come to possess the land uh, through repossession. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one thing some listeners may know or or may not is that – you know, even the landowners in the post-Bellum South uh, were very much in hock to the banks and to northern banks. In some ways, that reproduces the system that also existed under uh, slavery, right, where it was really a national economic engine. But in Sunnyside, um, which was a bit of 12,000-acre plantation, it's huge. It's in Oxbow Lake um, uh, in, in Chico County. Um, and so at Sunnyside, this, this, again, this New York banking firm had uh, repossessed the, the mortgage of the land in about the 1880s. And by 1894, 1895, a proposal appears. And it's a little mysterious as to where it initially came from. There's no direct evidence. But I think there was probably some kind of social conversation and connection between uh, Austin Corbin, who uh, was the Long Island, not in addition to being the head of the Corbin Banking Company, he also developed the Long Island Railroad. So he was, uh, you know, kind of a financier of at, at large uh, right. um, of the of the characteristic of the late nineteenth century, and he ended up somehow having a conversation with a man named Alessandro Aldrini, who is someone. If I can bring him into the <laughs> the known world, I'll yes. be very happy because um, he was a very important person who really appears like nowhere in the historiography, in the literature. Um, so the Italian government having 
witnessed uh, a, the beginning of what's going to be a very steep and rapid increase in Italian migration to the United States, they established something called the Office of Labor Information and Protection for Italians at Ellis Island. So that's where Alessandro Aldrini comes in. He was okay. the first head he was the chief agent. He kind of had a few different titles, but he was really the guy mm-hmm. <laughs> in this two-room office that existed on the second floor at Ellis Island. So if any listeners have ever visited the Ellis Island Immigration Museum, you know, you imagine, right, that, that processing space up on the second floor. So as far as I can tell, the office, which is what I call it because its name is very long mm-hmm. and unwieldy, um, was the first and only outpost of a foreign government that the U.S. government ever allowed to exist on Ellis Island. So, of course, there were people who represented the immigrant age groups, which were organized usually by ethnicity, um, who would come to the island and aid um, new arrivals. But this office was permanent and existed, again, within the federal station, which opens um, January 1st, 1892. So this opens 1894. Okay. <laughs> Still the first decade um, where the U.S. government is translating all of this big set of new immigration laws into policy prerogatives. So, you know, it's one thing to write a law. It's very different to figure out how to enact it on the ground. Um, and the body of officers at Ellis Island who were inspecting immigrants had largely come from the state of New York. That's who used to handle immigration arrivals. So brief history is that before 1891 and the establishment of the Federal Bureau of Immigration, uh, the states handled those arrivals and they pretty much just enumerated them. Individual states. Individual states. Yep. So you land in New York, New York State puts you on a list. Um, You land in New Orleans, state of Louisiana puts you on a list, um, et cetera, et cetera. And Arkansas is an interesting state, right, because it's landlocked. so So migrants who were coming here, right, would have had to have passage through a different state. So all of this is a long way of kind of coming back to our two characters here. Right. So Alessandro Aldrini was, um, he shows up in some places, you know, as like, he calls himself a bunch of different titles that I've never found any evidence for. But he's like, I, you know, was the chief of this and the chief of that. But he's, he's running this office and the office is kind of the pet project, if you will. Um, of the ambassador to the United States, um, Baron Saverio Fava. He's in office from 1881 to 1901. (laughs) And over that time, he initially arrives in Washington. No one is there. I mean, it's an empty legation. He feels like he's being punished by being sent to Washington because it was a backwater in 1881 when he sent there. So all of these things are all all populating um, the kind of milieu of this moment here. So by the 1890s, though, a couple of important things have happened. One, the establishment of that Federal Bureau of Immigration. Um, two, the New Orleans lynching in March of 1891. Those things both happened at the same time. Um, and then the creation of that office. So the ambassador between 1891 and 1894 is like, you know, we really weren't able to negotiate at all with the federal government or the state government or the local government about the lynching. Um, to get reparations or any significant settlement. So they start to try to intervene in their own ways, kind of not necessarily trusting what the federal government is doing as it continues to try to regulate more and more of the borders. 
all of this is yes. the giant background story, right? When we come back around then to this man, Alessandro Aldrini, he's, you know, he's writing reports, he's witnessing firsthand the way that migrants are inspected and excluded at Ellis Island, so sent back. But these two men, so Aldrini and Corbin, who would have been again in these New York circles, somehow met. Mm-hmm. As a historian, I can't make up those details. If I was a novelist, I would definitely write this story. It would be at a fancy hotel, I think, um, some kind of party or ballroom. But they somehow met and had a conversation. There was the suggestion in some way, right, that Italians, instead of coming through Ellis Island, um, where, again, they were increasingly the targets for restriction and exclusion, um, their rate of rejection was 2% versus the general European population at the time, which was at 1%. So most people do come into the country in this period, right? But it's double the rate of rejection of other right. Europeans. And that's notable. And the Italian government, again, they were concerned. You know, how do they both intervene in the application of this policy and how do they understand even the policy as it's unfolding? It's very confusing and, 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 and haphazard. So Corbin um, and Aldrini get also involved with another man, um, Prince, the Prince of Rome, Sort of a ceremonial title. Um, <laughs> a lot of self-promoters self-promo- in this story. Yes, there are yeah. actually. Um, and so this man, um, Enrico Ruspoli, so he owns a, a lot of land um, and is titled in the province of Lazio, which is where Rome is located. And he's like, you know, he gets involved too. And he's like, I've got I've got lots of people on my land. Why don't I send them? And that becomes the initial group of people who are specifically selected in order to populate Corbin's cotton plantation. How many people are we talking? So the initial group was probably around 150 to 174 families. That's a very specific number that's cited in 1898. Um, the numbers vary between different newspaper accounts. Um, the records of the plantation are incomplete. So that's, I think, a pretty good good range. Um, what's unusual here, right, is, first of all, that these are families. They're being directly recruited. So it's not like, you know, a general call. Mm-hmm. Um, they are facilitated in their migration process by these important kind of private actors, Corbin, Ruspoli, and these public actors, right? The royal Italian government, the ambassador. So we've got these families. Right, yes. Coming to this plantation. Yes. In the Arkansas Delta. Yes. To raise cotton. Yes. They're given a house. Yes. given a house, perhaps. They're rented. Uh-huh. Right. They're rented um, on contracts. So, again, there's a, there's the similarities, right, to the sharecropping system, and then there's some very distinct and important differences. So contracts become the method, right, by which most uh, cotton farming unfolds in the South in the post-bellum era um, with that system of sharecropping and of spreading like kudzu, basically, you know, um, mm-hmm. in in the 1880s, 1890s. Um, but what we see in the Sunnyside contracts is that 
each family signed for 12 and a half acres. They were paying their rent, but that rent was supposed to be on mortgage from the Corbin, underwritten by Corbin Banking Company, so that after 22 years, the families would own their plots. That's key, right? They, we have tons and tons of contracts signed um, with both black and white Southerners um, in the 1880s, 1890s, and I mean, I have never seen or heard of one that offered mortgage contract ownership. Right. Um, again, this was just not not offered to native-born um, uh, workers. So that's one thing. The contract itself is really important um, because it's it not only signifies that this is a different kind of migration, right, but that these people are supposed to come here permanently. They're moving. Yes. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. okay. They're not going back. Italians had the highest rate of return migration, as much as 50%. That... Phenomenon, which we call birds of passage, was one of the reasons, sort of like it was a catch-22, right? It was one of the reasons that Italians were also targeted as undesirable. Well, look at these people. They don't really want to settle. When they come here, they live in their own ethnic enclaves. They only speak their language. These kinds of of denigrating right. language, right, or, or, or discourse. Um, so the, the, the Corbin contract, the Sunnyside contract, right, look at that. It's offered as a, something very different. And the ambassador and the Aldrini at the office, as well as other Italian diplomats um, and politicians, they promote this experiment as a really important and path-breaking alternative to the patterns of Italian migration that are becoming more and more prevalent. I know as a historian, you can't, you, you've got to go with the facts. Do you think they're doing this in good faith? Oh, great question. Um, one of the, I think, yes and. Uh-huh. So one of the things that characterizes the Italian diplomatic corps, so Fava, who we were talking about earlier, his successor, a man named Edmondo Mera de Planche, um, who's in office from 1901 to 1909. He famously takes a train trip through the South and writes about it. Um, so so uh, he goes to Sunnyside, he goes to, you know, these mm-hmm. places. Um, but this this kind of diplomatic officer corps is really made up of um, titled, educated Italians. Um, and their class bias against the uneducated migratory I Italians see. who they are overseeing is prevalent. Um, it, it expresses itself in different ways. Um, you know, in a more positive sense, it's a little paternalistic. Yeah. But the ways in which they do it do not value the agency of the migrants themselves. Gotcha. And that's my historian interpretation, you know, um, of the time. Surprise. <laughs> Things don't work out as promised <laughs> or as well. There is then uh, a sort of emigration away from Sunnyside. Some of those people in Northwest Arkansas will know Father Bandini, mm-hmm. landing in Tawny Town. Mm-hmm. 1898. Right. Mm-hmm. This experience, though, changes or influences how the United States views immigration? Yes. And, and 
and that's without giving away too much of the book. <laughs> How? What? What? That's the the shocking and dramatic part of this history. So, you know, kind of zooming out, the big picture is that m- much of the historiography still argues that the South didn't really matter in the era of mass European migration. So, you know, we're talking about essentially 1880 to World War I um, through 1924, the establishment of immigration quotas um, by law that limited that, – that, that, well, not just limited, but cut off, right, um, Southern and Eastern European migration and completely eliminated any migration um, legally from uh, Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, it was literally – it was called the Asiatic bar zone and the quota was zero. Um, so – Yeah, that's written in black and white. Yes, that's yeah. – yes, that's yeah. very clear. Um, uh, migration from the Americas wasn't regulated in this law, right? This law was targeting, again, the, the quote-unquote undesirable, mm-hmm. right, Southern and Eastern uh, European immigrants of whom Italians were the largest group by far. Um, they're the largest group to be processed at Ellis Island, um, you know, they dramatically outnumber all other arrivals. And so when we talk about the formation of U.S. gatekeeping, so that's a phrase that I use a lot, right? Gatekeeping is like when we as a government or, you know, as a, as a, um, as a country say who can come in and who can't. Uh, what, what, you know, what do they require? What must they possess right, mm-hmm. in order to gain legal entry? Now, we also know that when we erect um, more and more borders and barriers to mobility, it doesn't stop the flow of people. It just changes its direction, its its tenor. Um, when we make crossing more difficult um, and bureaucratic and dangerous and expensive, that has repercussions as well, which which we see, you know, to the current day. So one of the things that's happening in the 1890s in this what I call right this these this pivotal 10 years so from 1891 to 1901 is that the Italian government is watching very closely what the U.S. is doing. So when you go like me into the Italian diplomatic archive, that's the core of how I know what I know right. coming out of these records, right? So I look at, you know, I, I look at Fava's day-to-day notes, his correspondence, the newspapers he was reading, the you know, the directives he was sending, what his consuls were telling him, what his bosses back in Rome were telling him to do and and how he was shaping that, um, uh, the, you know, the program of foreign relations um, for Italy, which is a very young country in this period. Um, their, you know, kind of story of national um, formation actually c- happens in the same decade as our civil war. Right. So, yeah, so yeah. There's, some, there's some parallels there. And then by the, the 1890s, uh, my colleague Daniele Fiorentino argues that Italy and the United States are trying to find their place among nations. That's kind of his phrase. Um, and Italy looks to the U.S. for economic models. Some historians have written about that. But I say also for how to manage migration as well. Um, Italian, the Italian government is watching what's happening in the U.S. And again, back to the diplomatic documents, when you look at them, you see that um, you see that really clearly, like very, very clearly. Um, and you also see how much volume uh, and attention Sunnyside Plantation held in the ambassador's mind and in his consulate in New Orleans. Attention because it didn't work out or? Because it, it was such... 
It was a facilitated migration. Gotcha. An experiment of sorts. Yes. And it required bypassing, I'm going to say, overcoming the alien contract labor law of 1885. How do we not know more about this? Well, one of the major limitations is that this story is locked in handwritten Italian documents in mm. Rome. <laughs> okay. So I've spent a I've spent 19 years um, working with these documents, deciphering them, tr- tracking this path, right, that I continue to develop as I look at the labor agents who then recruited people later on and brought them through New Orleans as that migration fl- um, uh, flow increased dramatically. You know, um, looking also at the role, right, that that Sunnyside Plantation played in the larger imagination as the Italians who went there were were kind of conveyed in the press as desirable immigrants, as good citizens working their own farms, a very racial um, and class kind of uh, language applied to them. Uh, So the Italian government by 1901 forms, uh, it it passes a, a landmark emigration law regulating how people exit the country, right? And that establishes the system that we have today. It's still in place in Italy. Um, but when we think about the, the fact that Sunnyside and the arrival of Italians to Arkansas and then the failure of that experiment kind of p- continued to push the Italian government to formulate its own policies, um, kind of as it started to feel, right, that it couldn't really trust what the U.S. government was going to do in immigration regulation. And they were right that, you know, more and more laws for qualitative restriction aimed at Italians continued to proliferate right. until the final quantitative restriction um, again in 1924. So that whole, right, the, the, this experiment, you know, while it fails to establish a robust population of Italian landowning cotton farmers in, um, in the Delta, it, uh, what it does do is it... It helps to establish, I think, the Italian government as a key partner in gatekeeping, which brings it back to my title. You know, right. we need we as the U.S. government, as a, as U.S. society, right, require the cooperation of foreign governments in managing who enters the country, what paperwork they have, what qualifications they might have to the present day. Um, we, you know, in the scholars, we call this remote control, and I argue it was happening decades earlier, and we see that in this Italian example. Um, but it's a system that we still operate under today. And I'll say finally as well that the the construction of, of an quote-unquote immigration problem emerges around the discourse around Italians um, at the turn of the 20th century. And the Italians who come south are very explicitly portrayed by diplomats, progressive reformers, and Italian reformers as um, desirable. Uh, and trying to kind of break, right, this this steady drive towards restriction. So that's a really important part of the story as well that continues to influence our discourse around the immigration problem today. Lauren Braun-Strumfels is the author of Partners in Gatekeeping, How Italy Shaped U.S. Policy Over Ten Pivotal Years, 1891 to 1901. She is an associate professor in the history department at Cedar Crest College, and was a Fulbright Scholar. She visited the University of Arkansas and KUAF earlier this fall.
ahead on our show. Illinois-based singer-songwriter Dan McGuire recently came to the Carver Center for Public Radio in between gigs in Bentonville and Eureka Springs. When he was touring through the region, he had his guitar and his mountain bike. Did you get to do any mountain biking? I one? did in Bentonville. It's <laughs> yeah. a gigantic playground. It's well done. A little conversation about cycling, a couple of original songs, and more with Dan McGuire. That's ahead on today's show. The group Friends of the Berryville Library is raising funds for a new library building big enough to serve the needs of its growing community. For more information on the importance of public libraries in the lives of individuals and the strength of our communities, and how you can help, BerryvilleLibrary.org. KUAF is supported by Arkansas Community Foundation, working with professional advisors to offer clients philanthropic investment opportunities to match their needs. Whether it's tax-related, retirement planning, or creating a legacy of giving, more at ARCF.org. This is Ozarks at Large. The holiday blockbuster movie season is upon us. Disney gets us rolling. A 100th anniversary animated feature called Wish. Courtney Lanning, do you wish that we would all see this film? Kyle, I wish that I had not seen this film. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is such an embarrassment for Disney's 100th anniversary. Um, it's just... It's lackluster and generic in every category I could imagine rating it on. The animation is bland. The songs are forgettable. The writing is so underbaked. Um, you know I don't like to give negative reviews. Right. Uh, th this was kind of a letdown. All right. The premise, there's a all I know really is that there's a star involved, like an actual star. Yes, so the, the setup is in this kingdom somewhere in the Mediterranean Ocean, which is kind of a strange setting. This island kingdom, uh, there's a, a magic king who takes people's wishes. They freely surrender them to him for protecting. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, a few times a year, he will grant a random person's wish. So everybody's basically, it's kind of like playing the wish lottery. Um, and this young girl named Asha is excited to try to become the king's apprentice, the apprentice wishmaker. Um, she finds out pretty early on, and the, the trailers pretty much point this out immediately. The king is kind of not a great guy, um, and the wishes that he takes are actually kind of like little pieces of people's souls, and they kind of leave them hollow and without potential afterward. Um, and she realizes this isn't the way things should be. So she makes a wish upon a star as mm -hmm. Disney's theme Pinocchio song says, and uh, a little star comes down out of the sky and starts making magic happen everywhere. And I guess they try to get everybody's wishes back for them. And the premise sounds great. Um, they just kind of forgot to write a good movie around it. <laughs> well, this was, this is being promoted as the 100th anniversary of Disney's, animation we've seen these lists of the hundred disney movies over the past hundred years it's a shame then that it doesn't have magic in it yeah and the thing is it what this feels like to me is like it should have been a disney short that they mm. put on to disney plus um when you make a short some of your burdens are a bit lessened you know we don't expect super deep writing for a villain we don't expect um cinematic quality animation 
Um, we don't expect a, a long story, but this feels like they took an idea for a short and they stretched it out to 95 minutes. It is an hour and a half of Disney saying, hey, remember when all the great things we used to do? <laughs> uh, it sounds like it commits one of the ultimate animation sins in that it's boring. It kind of is. Mm. Um, the most exciting thing about this movie when I went to watch it is that about an hour into the film, the fire alarms went off. So my wife and I and everyone in the theater had to go stand outside for about 20, 30 minutes. And then we were allowed, sadly, to go back in and finish the movie. I think I would have preferred a refund. <laughs> All right. Well, so Wish doesn't, it's not going to be in the Disney classics when when we're thinking it, back. It's not. Um like I said, most of the music is forgettable. I think I liked one song out of, what, seven or eight. Mm. I laughed at maybe one or two jokes out of a 95-minute movie. They just, they were so busy to point to everything they'd done before because there are so many references in this to mm. Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty and Snow White. And there's so many references that it just gets tired. After about 20 to 30 minutes of Disney going, hey, remember that movie we made that you loved? God, it just it got tiring. Any idea whether, like, you know, a seven or eight-year-old would like it? I assume that there are going to be kids who aren't looking at this critically, right. like, like me, um, who I guess would be fine with it. Um, it'd have about the same effect as putting on you know, a movie in the background on Netflix to keep your child entertained while you try to make supper or something. Gotcha. All right, so Wish, uh, Swing and a Miss. What about next week? Next week, uh, we will talk about a new holiday movie starring Eddie Murphy called Candy Cane Lane. I've seen, I've seen the trailers, and I'll tell you that I just instantly like Eddie Murphy. I don't necessarily like all of his movies, but I'll give it a shot. He's a charming guy. We'll yeah. see how he does. All right. Courtney Lanning's review for Wish can be found at OzarksAtLarge.com and KUAF.com. We'll talk about Eddie Murphy in the holidays next week. Courtney, thanks so much. Kyle, thanks for having me. This is Ozarks at Large. Pleasant Friday to you. I'm Kyle Kellams. Dan McGuire didn't start playing music for other people right away. He listened to music as a teenager, then picked up a guitar in college. Years later, began writing songs. Now he tours across the middle of the country when he takes time away from his day job. The touring is going quite well, as is the songwriting. This fall, he played dates at Peddler's Pub in Bentonville, as well as gigs at the Frisco Sporting Club and Gotta Hold Brewing in Eureka Springs. In between Bentonville and Eureka, he came to the Furman Garner Performance Studio to play a couple of songs for us, to also talk about his path to riding and his love of mountain biking. First, 
He played an original song for us, Empty Pockets. Well, empty pockets, lots on my shoes, so I see. I love that woman happily. When I'm hungry, she fills up my soul and I'm free. To love that woman happily And when I get up and she ain't home I try to believe she'll return just for me I'll be Only one she's thinking of I am a loved, I'm not lost She's happy to be here with me Drink the water and I find the sign to rest me. I love that woman heavily. And then she smiles when I come around, man, I breathe. I love that woman heavily. Turn just for me, I'll be only one. She's thinking of I am a loved, I'm not lost. She's happy to be here with me. Empty pocket, lots on my shoes, so I see. Love thou won't have Then she smiles when I come around, man, I breathe. I love that woman heavily. Love that woman heavily. Love that woman heavily. Well, I love that woman. Empty Pockets is a love song for my wife, Rebecca, and my son, who's now 19, he was probably four. And I was coming up with these ideas, and I said, Liam, help me with this song. Let's write a song for for mom. And so, you know, he sat with me, and we came up with ideas. Well, you know, little kids, you know, Liam, when he would run around the house and play, their pockets were always hanging out. So, you know, he's running around, his pockets hanging out. So I was like, empty pockets. That's a cool name for a love song. So. <laughs> what was it like the first time you played it for your wife? That song? Uh, gosh, that's so long ago. I mean, she liked it, and she liked she liked what he and I were doing together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she. I think she probably liked that part more than the song. But now I think the song is very nostalgic for her. Yeah. So you grew up in Tulsa, in I the did. Tulsa area. Yeah, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Okay. Yeah. So did you infuse Leon Russell, J.J. Kale? Yes. Big J.J. Kale fan. I, I am a big fan. The Tulsa sound, um, that's just smooth, chill rock and roll. Uh, very big Eric Clapton fan, Steve Ray Vaughan. 
Um, I, you know, I introduce myself. I say I'm f- I, I'm, I live outside Chicago, but I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma, which to people like me is the center of the universe. <laughs> and I love the city still. And I tell you what, I love this area. I love coming out of the Ozarks area. I love Arkansas. It's just it means a lot to me because of growing up here. All right. So you probably listened to a lot of music when you were young. I did. When did you start playing the guitar? Well, I kind of just – we had an old nylon string in my house as a kid, and I took some lessons in grade school and then jacked around with it. But it didn't really take off and get serious until I was like a freshman in college. So what, what do you think – what motivated that when you were a freshman? You know, I, I think college was a time for me to go, all right, reset. I get to reinvent who I am and stop doing the things that are causing me problems and do things, you know, right? And so I get to reset who I am and reinvent myself. And I went to Regis University in Denver, and they had a guitar program there. And I signed up for it, and it took off for me. And the professor's name is Scott Smith, and he was probably the biggest influence on music for me out of anybody. So guitar, but then there's also songwriting. Yeah. They don't necessarily go hand in hand. They do not, no. And, you know, so what happened with that is that I think listening to music, reading about it, reading about songwriters, you know, having friends. But that one also came from uh, Scott Smith, who he would teach things like dynamics. So verses are generally quieter than choruses and that emotional impact that that has. So that type of thing. So I did get some from him on that. This is your second, third time to do this sort of tour? This is my third time through, yeah. What do you like about the, the, the gigs you do here? So, okay, that's a great question. Um, I, I started in Geneva, Illinois, Tuesday night, and then I was in St. Louis. St. Louis is Evangeline's. It's this French restaurant. Do you know it? I do. Oh, man. And it's just the coolest place, and they're great to me. So it's funky. i got some friends that show up. And then, I, again, there is just something nostalgic and happy about the, the Ozarks area because I'd come here as a kid on vacations and being close to Tulsa. I just like it. And so I like coming down here. But Peddler's Pub in Bentonville is incredible, right? Eureka Springs is just the neatest place in the world. I got two new places going there. So it's, it's really that. It's just it's nostalgia, and I, I like being here. I like how it feels. One of, the great gig, one of the great benefits of my job is I get these, like, private concerts. Yeah. You know, you play there right for me. Often when you're playing, maybe people are paying attention, and yeah. sometimes they're not. Yeah, for is sure. Is that okay? That's totally fine. That's totally fine. Like, you know, so um, – there's there's a lot of times I play and it's a pairing it's dinner and you know, I try try to be very careful with my volume because I'm I'm a piece of what's happening and people are still talking they are listening and I like that because I'm enhan- I'm a part of the enhancement right and that's and you know that's great I still need to work to engage them but be careful not to tread on their they're having an experience too so yeah I like all of that and then you know of course it's nice to be sort of the feature in a listening room that's cool too. Yeah, I would. I mean, I'm I'm no musician, but I would think if I'm singing songs that I've written that are about my family. Yeah. Damn it. I want you to. <laughs> yeah. You know, what? I, that, that, maybe when I was younger, that doesn't really bother me too much because I'm really focusing now on more engagement carefully, which is good for me. But the thing is, they are listening. And what happens is sometimes they don't clap. Sometimes it's quiet. And that's OK. And then. They'll come up and I don't I, for tip jar. I didn't start doing one until two years ago. Out of all these years, and I cannot believe how how incredibly generous people are. They're listening and they come up and talk to you. So they are. They are. Your vehicle is in the parking lot, yeah. and on the back of it is a mountain bike. Yeah. Did you get to do any mountain biking? I one? did in Bentonville. It's <laughs> yeah. a Gigantic playground. There's 
Well done. <laughs> okay, but here's what would worry me. I'm all worrying here. Worrying about people not listening to your songs. Yeah. Worrying, you, your hands are important. Yeah, I know. I know and where you're mountain going. biking. I mean, collarbones and hands and fingers. I took it easy. I'm not. I'm not. Okay. I don't do what I used to do. I take it easy. I was with my brother, and we had a good time together, and, and stayed on like greens and blues, and took. And I'm, I told him like, I'm gonna take it easy, man. I can't. I can't. So it was fine. Okay. But, but it was in my head. <laughs> yeah. So Geneva, St. Louis, Bentonville, Eureka. Yeah. Then home. And then I'm going home Monday morning. Okay. Uh, are you able to write when you drive? Do you come up with ideas? You know, not really, because what I do is um, I've always heard, well, I should, I've heard a lot, words and then music. I've always done music, then words. And so I, I just sit around, and the guitar has become like smoking or making your coffee. It's like this physical thing I'm always just kind of doing. And ideas come to me, and then I start putting words on top of it. And then I really got validated in that thing because one of, to me, very personal, the greatest songwriter in rock and roll history for me is Chris Cornell from Soundgarden. Just absolutely magnificent. And that's what he did. He did music first. And I was like, all right, okay, maybe I'm doing something right. <laughs> that, that surprises me when, when it's a song as personal as Maeve, yeah. right? Very personal. I would think you'd want to start with words first. I, How to express yourself. I, I know. And I and, and just... I just I, I, I like oh I like that on the guitar and then melodies start coming into my head and then I just I start writing down words to it. Hmm. Yeah. So you were able to reinvent or 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 at least expand who you were when you went to college. Yes. You have two children in college now. I do. A freshman and a senior. Senior. Do you have any sort of talk with them like how much college sort of changed your direction? Yeah, and we've talked about that, and it's really interesting because, you know, they're going through that. Uh, you know, Madeline's at West Virginia University, and uh, she's, an she's an incredibly bright, she's just a wonderful person, and she's changing directions. And she's expressed like, oh, you know, is that, I, I feel like I've wasted time. Like, no, 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 that's the process. That's the process. And now my son Liam's a freshman in Miami of Ohio. And, you know, he's not really sure what he wants to do. But after four years, he'll go through a process, too. And my wife and I, we celebrate that. Mm. I asked what your wife, Rebecca, yeah. thought about Empty Pockets. What does Liam think about Empty Pockets since he I helped mean, you? You know, he's 19 and he, he doesn't say much. I'm sure in his head and in his heart he likes he likes being part of it. He, he and Rebecca have a very special, very close relationship. So I'm sure he, he yeah. Maybe even in his mid-20s when he gets a little older. He'll, okay. But, you know. So what is it like for you to do these sort of, I think you called them mini tours. Do you, do yeah. you, do you, ha you have time to yourself? I do. And do you like that? Uh, being, being alone solo is tough for me. Like business travel with my, with my job, uh, that is hard for me. But this was great because friends came over from Tulsa and friends came down from Rockford for Mountain Bike and my brother. So it's been great. Well, the next two nights I'm alone, and that can be kind of hard. Um, where can people find out more? They can you? go to my website, which is probably the best, or um, I'm on Facebook and Instagram because, you know, I'm older and I, <laughs> I'm an immigrant to the social media world and I'm not a native. But it's Dan McGuire and it's spelled Amazon Mark A-G-U-I-R-E. So danmcguire.com or you know, find me on Facebook and Instagram. If you're driving from St. Louis to Bentonville, do you sing to yourself in the car? I do, man. I tell you what, I, I talk, this is a great, this is one of my favorite things to talk about. Feel like, I'm not a good singer. I'm like, okay, that's a ridiculous thing to say, number one, because on a sunny day, 
when that Boston song comes on the radio, you you sing your heart out. And I'm like, yeah, I do. I'm like, everybody does that. Everybody does that, man. You look around, nobody can see me, and you let it rip. <laughs> well, uh, safe travels. Thank you. Sing to your heart's desire. Yeah, thank you. On the way back to Rockford, Illinois. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for having me. This has been a this has really been a privilege. Thank you. Dan McGuire is a singer-songwriter based in Rockford, Illinois, who tours through Northwest Arkansas and the Central United States annually. Our conversation took place in the Furman Garner Performance Studio this fall. Dan already knows he'll be back in October 24th. We'll have him back in our studio. And during our visit, you heard me mention another of his songs that I asked him to play, Maeve. So he did. This is Dan McGuire playing one more song for us in the Furman Garner Performance Studio. up and realize you didn't sleep at home last night. I wonder if you think of me or am I lost in ancient memory. I got little dreams seeping into my sleep. Another fine day to share. Never been so lost before, wandering this empty shore all day. I'll come to find in my mind peace rewards you when you come to shine, shine. With your little dreams seeping into my sleep, another fine day to share it'll make me weep. It's a song you sing when you fly away on your little wings. The way you move, it looks right, you know you just can't lose. And what I want to say, I feel so sad, cause you went away. You are the light and the sun, keep it warm before everyone. Sometimes it's so hard to take, I can't bear it away. You have healed so much so far, illuminate us little shooting star. Yeah, yeah, with your little dreams seeping into my sleep. Another fine day to share, it'll make me weep. It's a song you sing when you fly away on your little wings. The way you move, it looks right, you know, just can't lose. And what I want to say, I feel so sad, you went away. You are the light and the sun, keep it warm for everyone. It's a song you sing when you fly away on your little wings. The way you move, it looks right, you know, just can't lose. What I want to say, I feel so sad because you went away. You are the light and the sun, keep it warm for everyone. Recent research indicates consistent good sleep is important for our health. 
and people struggling with insomnia often try to compensate for a bad night's rest with quick remedies like an afternoon nap or going to bed early the next night. Ivan Vargas, assistant professor of psychological science at the University of Arkansas, says there are better ways to address insomnia. In the long term, it's not great for insomnia because what it's doing is it's decreasing that sleep pressure when it's time to go to bed. And so, so the idea behind sleep restriction therapy is to try to maximize the amount of sleep pressure at night when we're trying to go to bed with the goal of trying to make us more efficient sleepers. You can hear more about sleep research from Ivan Vargas in this month's Short Talks from the Hill, a research podcast from the University of Arkansas. You can listen at KUAF.com, arkansasresearch.uark.edu, or wherever you get your podcasts. Next week on Ozarks at Large, a conversation with Peter Nickies, whose beat for the Chicago Tribune was violence and the people affected by violence. And sometimes we wouldn't talk to anybody because I thought this is not going to work out for us. And it's just going to upset people. And, um, you know, some of those you file away and you try to revisit them later. Some you just can't get to because of the volume of violence. And, and even then when you're speaking with someone, yeah, like we, we tried to convey through choice of clothing, through body language, through our, just the way we moved around the scene, through how we spoke with people through eye contact, through everything, that we were sensitive to how upsetting of a thing this was, even if we couldn't know firsthand, and that we would do the best we could to be respectful of the gravity of it. And so I think that helped sometimes because people would talk with us. We did have success, you know, getting people to talk. That conversation is part of our show on Wednesday. You can hear Ozarks at Large every weekday at noon and 7 p.m. on 91.3 KUAF. This reminder, Ozarks at Large can be heard every weeknight at 7 on Little Rock Public Radio KUAR. And you can always ask your smart speaker to play Ozarks at Large to hear the most recent daily edition of our show. The talk business and politics tourism ticker indicates tourism continues to attract people and their money to the state. The latest report shows that Arkansas's 2% tourism tax revenue between January and August was near $17.5 million. That's an increase of more than 7% compared to the same time frame in 2022. There were more than 133,000 tourism jobs in Arkansas in August. That's the fifth consecutive month, there have been at least 130,000 tourism jobs in the state. You can read the entire tourism ticker report at our partner's website, Talk Business and Politics. That's talkbusiness.net. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art will host journalists who work to expose the Harvey Weinstein sexual assault allegations. Their work helped inspire the Me Too movement. Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey will be at Crystal Bridges in early December. Their work earned them a Pulitzer Prize. Their book, She Said, Breaking the Sexual Harassment Story that Helped Ignite a Movement, topped the New York Times bestseller list. They'll be part of a discussion about their work and about their book at Crystal Bridges on Friday evening, December 8th at 6. Tickets are $30 for non-members, $24 for members. And Sunday, December 3rd, Ozark Folkways in Winslow will host a foraging hike and demonstration with Tim Hammer. He'll lead participants on a hike that will cover plant identification, harvest and reseeding, and food preparation. Cost for the hike is $30. 
It will start at 9 a.m. on that Sunday morning, December 3rd, and you can find more information at ozarkfolkways.org. KUAF's Daily Word Game is a five-letter puzzle available to play right now, as in T-O-D-A-Y. Ugh. Okay. You might get the word if you listen to the Ozarks at Large A-U-D-I-O. Okay, okay. Maybe it's because I forgot to remind you that you can play the game at kuaf.com or by subscribing to the Ozarks at Large newsletter that shows up in your email, I-N-B-O-X. Well, maybe you'll have better luck than me. Go try your luck today. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF in Fayetteville. And KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. You can find out more about our show and listen to past editions of our show at OzarksAtLarge.com. You can find out more about KUAF at KUAF.com. Contributors to this day after Thanksgiving show included Courtney Lanning. The program put together inside the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio at the Carver Center for Public Radio in downtown Fayetteville. I'm Kyle Kellams. Thank you so much for listening. We start a brand new week of shows Monday. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art presents the final season of Listening Forest. Guests are invited to explore an interactive world of light, sound, and wonder in this immersive nighttime experience. Open through December 31st. Tickets at crystalbridges.org. KUAF is supported by Butterfield Trail Village, a premier Northwest Arkansas retirement community catering to active lifestyles and resident well-being. Offering a variety of amenities and living options from apartments to village homes, plus on-site fitness facilities. ButterfieldTrailVillage.org for more.